During Christmas, we often sing a lot of songs. We sing uh, quite a few songs of, uh, about the birth of Christ. We sing a lot of songs about, uh, uh, about snow and, and bells and, and all kinds of things. We're singing. I mean, really, a lot of Christmas is uh, about singing, and it should be because uh, we sing about the things that we love, correct? We sing about the things that we really uh, enjoy. Um, you sing, we, we break out into song, perhaps, um, when things are going well for us. We're reminded of a song that describes this moment, and we begin to, we begin to hum that song, like, uh, we are the champions, or uh, various phrases like that, when we win a game, or uh, things along those lines. I, uh, my kids, you know, when we do, uh, on Friday nights, we have Friday Family Fun Night, and they wrote a song about that. It's just Friday Family Fun Night, Friday Family Fun Night. And it just, it just goes on and on like that. There's no bridge or chorus. It's just, that's it. That's it. It's a very uh, great song to listen to. Uh, so, I mean, there's, there's those songs. I wrote a song for my wife. It was a breakup song. Um, so it, I should have known, like, through that, like, it was called I'm So Sorry. My kids make fun of me for it all the time. Gray, one of our worship leaders, also makes fun of me. Uh, but it, it was, like, mourning the, uh, the breakup with my wife, which th- this was pre-marriage, by the way. Uh, but, uh, but no, this was, this was before, and I think in and through writing this ridiculous, it's like a really emo-sounding song, you know, very, like, whiny, cryy, those types of things. I'll never sing it for you or anything like that. Um, but uh, it was that kind of, I think it was even through that that I realized, you know, I really love this girl, you know, and so we ended up uh, keeping it going there, obviously. So we sing about the things that we love. We sing about the things that we um, enjoy. And that's what we see in the first part of Luke here is that uh, Luke is showing us that Jesus is worthy of being sung about. And so he, he has two different songs. There's the Magnificat. Uh, Ryan, our uh, other worship leader here, uh, told me that it's not Magnus, Magnificat, it's Magnificat. But I like to say Magnificat because it sounds like a magnificent cat, right? Kind of like a superhero or something like that. But uh, Magnificat, I should say, is the first song that we see in Luke. And then there's other poems as we go through. And it's, it's almost poems or songs or sayings, things like that, that are kind of poetic. And I think what Luke is trying to tell us is he's trying to show us that Jesus is worthy to be sung about and what he's done. And so we talked about the, uh, what Mary's song um, just a little bit last week, and then this week we're getting into Zachariah's song. And Zechariah has a song that's uh, amazing as well. So if you turn with me to Luke chapter 1, we'll pick it up in verse 57. And while you're turning there, uh, I just want to remind you that the book of Luke is written to a guy. His name is Theophilus. Theophilus, is a, he's not a Jew. He's a Greek. And he is probably some type of a high-up official somehow, somewhere, because he calls him most excellent Theophilus. And so Luke is writing to this guy, and he wants to tell him some things. And so what he says, uh, well, we'll get to that in just a second. But in in fact, he's continuing to talk to Theophilus here in verse 57, which says this. Now the time came for Elizabeth... To give birth. If you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, Elizabeth is the mother of John the Baptist. 
And what has happened is that Gabriel, the angel, came and visited Zechariah, who is her husband, while he's in the middle of doing priestly duties. And Gabriel comes in and says, you're going to have a son. He doesn't believe him. And so what happens is this, is that Gabriel says, okay, uh, here's a sign for you. You're not going to be able to speak until you have this baby. And so that's, that's what happens there. So now we're getting into the birth of John the Baptist who is the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And so it says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives are called John by this name and they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote his name is John and they all wondered and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing God and fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying what then will this child be for the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You, John, he's speaking to his son. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now, this is a fantastic song that we read about here that really displays some amazing things. It really talks about uh, this, this praise that erupts out of Zechariah by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's this praise that's talking about what God has done what he's doing and what he's going to do. However, the way that Zechariah talks about it, he talks about it as though it's all been done. It's already taken place. There's such amazing faith that's happening in Zechariah that Zechariah sees exactly what God is doing. And so he begins to pour out praise. He's pouring out praise and saying, God, you have done all of these things. You have made all of these things happen. You have kept your word. Your prophecies have come true. You swore this oath, and you kept that oath. You promised the Messiah, and you brought the Messiah. And, and John is the forerunner of this, and he is exclaiming praise for the Savior. See, Zechariah is excited about Christmas. 
Zechariah is excited about Christmas on a level that most of us know nothing about. He's excited about what God is doing in the midst of Christmas. He's, it's the anticipation of something that has already taken place, and he is erupting with praise. He's erupting with praise because of what God has done in and through this situation. As I said, Zechariah had been mute and, and possibly even deaf throughout these nine months of the, uh, uh, Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist, with her son. And so here he is shut up for nine months where he can't say anything. He can't speak anything. He possibly can't even hear anything. And he's just been kind of thinking about these things because God has given him a sign and said, I know you don't believe this right now, but here's your sign. You're not going to be able to speak. And so he's been shut up for many, many months. And the moment that he says his name is John, it's as though he was putting the finishing touches on faith in God's word. And his faith in God's word erupted into praise. That faith culminated in him saying, his name is John. It's not going to be John. His name is John. He's walking in obedience to God. And so here he is walking in obedience to God. And God says, okay, here we go. Here we go. Let me fill you with the Holy Spirit so that you can be, begin to erupt with praise. And he begins to erupt with praise and he begins to speak the truth about who this God is. Let me ask you something. Do you know anything about this? Do you know anything about erupting in praise for the Savior? Do you know anything about sitting in worship of this time, this season, this Advent season? as we sit and think about anticipation, as we sit and ponder what God has done in and through the Savior, do we know anything of these things? Because what I believe happens oftentimes is that we as people in the church become fairly accustomed to what's, what's going on around us. We become fairly accustomed to what's happening during this time, during this season. And so what we end up doing is that we end up thinking, okay, this is... This is Christmas time. Yes, we celebrate Jesus. We talk about Jesus as the reason for the season. But Zechariah has just unloaded a whole host of reasons that enable us to sing. And yet, the problem is oftentimes that we actually don't have the voice for it. We actually don't have the ability to sing in this way. And the question is, why isn't it that way? Why do we have such a difficult time praising God for everything he's done, everything he's doing, everything he's going to do, and then speaking about that as though it's already taken place? Well, the truth is this. The truth is that you and I, just like Zachariah, are in unbelief. We sit in unbelief. We exist in unbelief oftentimes. So some of you come by that honestly. You've come to church this morning and you've wondered, do I even believe this stuff? Do I even believe uh, what they're claiming uh, has happened? Do I believe that? But many of us also have unbelief, even though we claim that we have belief. We exist. We operate in this uh, unbelief that says, I don't know that what God says is true. I don't know 
that I trust him. I don't know that I believe that what he says about my life and who I should be and where I should go and who I should hang out with and how I should live my life, I don't know that that's true. And we prove it day in and day out. Every single one of us in this room, on some level or another, disbelieve God. We, disbelieve, we, we, we do not place faith in him on a regular basis. And it's ultimately because we just lack the faith to be able to do so. We lack the faith to be able to do so just like Zechariah. And why is this? Why is this? If you look at the passage with me, one of the things that you'll see here is in verse 76. It says this, And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. So John is a forerunner. He, he, is, he is born and he's going before Jesus. He's going to prepare the way. And how is he going to prepare the way? What he's going to do is, verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. So John is going to come in, and he's going to inform people. He's an information officer, if you will. He's going to sit with a loudspeaker. He's going to go out in the desert. He's going to be kind of a weird guy. He's going to go out there and he's going to proclaim salvation. He's going to shout salvation. He's going to talk about it. He's going to witness to it. He's going to say, this is what is available to you. And what is available to you is this, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in what? The forgiveness of their sins. Now, we in the church oftentimes are okay with talking about the idea of the forgiveness of sins. Many of us have come to Jesus with an acknowledgement. In fact, nobody has come to Jesus without this acknowledgement. I'll just say that. Uh, I hope that everyone who claims to be a believer in this room has come this way. But we have come to Jesus and there's been an, an acknowledgement, a truth, a reality that says, I need forgiveness for my sins. John was the forerunner who was going before Jesus and he was bringing the reality that we must have forgiveness for our sins. We must be forgiven. So this is the bad news that John is bringing. John is bringing the conviction. John is bringing the reality. He's bringing the truth. And the truth is this, is that there's no one ever anywhere that does not need the forgiveness of God because of their sins. Now this is not a fun fact that our culture likes to believe. The very idea that I need to be forgiven for my sins is, is pushed back against so hard in our culture. Because what our culture says is this. Our culture says, you know what? Instead of seeking forgiveness, why don't you just say that this is who you are and this is what you do and this is how you operate? This is, you know, here I am, get used to it. This is, this is what I'm doing. Our culture very much so wants to deny the reality that we need forgiveness for sins. But John is bringing this, and this is what Zechariah is singing about. He's singing about how the Savior is coming, and he's bringing the possibility of salvation in the forgiveness of our sins. Now, 
Why does John need to say that? Well, because just before this, what he said was this in verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies. Jewish people during this time are thinking to themselves, you know what? We're waiting for the Messiah. We've heard the Old Testament prophets and we've, we've, we've read the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. We've read all this stuff and so we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting for this great Savior who's going to come and release us from our foreign foe who has us under their control. And they're going to release us and we're going to be our own nation and God's going to be at the center of that again. And so what these people believed is that they believed that they were going to be released from their physical, political enemies. And what John comes and does, what John comes and says is this, is that God is not coming at this time to bring about this complete reordering in the political realm. God is coming to release you from the enemy of your soul, to release you from the enemy who drags you down, the enemy who brings about sin in our lives, the enemy who is against us. And so he's able to say this, that there's this revolution that has begun, but it's not a political revolution. It is a total and complete spiritual revolution that's going to happen because the knowledge of salvation has been brought because of the forgiveness of sins. And the second thing he says is this, he says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, our, our, our world, we included, often sing about peace. We often sing about a, a, a peace that we desire. Give Peace a Chance was a song, I don't know how many years ago, probably 30 years ago, maybe 40 years ago, I don't know. Give Peace a Chance. There's all, uh, all kinds of talk about love and peace and people getting along and tolerance and the ability to stand one another, the ability to spend time with one another. There's all of this talk about this. And what our world believes is that peace can come through a new election. Both sides of the political spectrum believe that peace will come if my guy or my girl gets in. Peace will come if that takes place. Peace, peace will, will finally come into my world if I can just have this job that's going to pay so much more. Peace will come into my life, into my world, if I could just get married. Peace will come into my world if I could just have a child. Peace will come into my world if that person would get out of here. Peace would come into my world and into my family if everyone would just see it my way. Peace will come if everyone just does what I say. Our world believes that we can affect peace, that we can make peace happen, that we can uh, bring it about. But what this is saying right here is this, 
There's going to be this prophet. His name is John. He's going to come and he's going to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. And this knowledge is going to come by way of this light. There's going to be this light that gets shined on them in, in their understanding. And what, he, what he's saying about you and I before we even understand the Savior is that we sit in darkness, that we sit in the shadow of death, and that we need this light, that we need this information, that we need this ability in order to guide our feet into the way of peace. What this is saying is that we are darkened in our understanding. We have no way of leading ourselves into peace without Jesus. And as a result, what happens is this, is that there is just this persistent lostness. Our world sits in a lost state. We could just go down, go down the list. We could go down the list and we could, we could talk about hot-button political issues on both sides. We sit in darkness because we treat people with disrespect. We're, we, are, we do not have compassion for the unborn child and we do not have compassion for the immigrant. We sit in darkness because we believe that everything I have is mine and no one should take it and I shouldn't have to help with that. We sit in darkness because we believe you have more so I should take it. We sit in darkness because the, the wife of our youth does not fulfill us anymore. And so we begin to allow our eyes to wander. We sit in darkness because we believe if I just had a more spiritual husband, then he would fulfill all my desires. We sit in darkness and we believe that the decisions that we make, we believe the ways that we, that we, we know the way to get peace and the way to get peace is for me to leave my wife and kids it is to scream uncontrollably, either through social media or actually visibly and physically at people who disagree with me, to throw punches, to... I, is our world any more peaceful today than it was 10 years ago? It absolutely is not. And our world continues to believe that it can define where peace comes from and what it is. We sit in darkness. We sit in an in, in inability to even understand what peace actually is. We have no way of doing it. See, here's the thing. The question is, can you sing about the Savior? Can you lead yourself into the way of peace? And the answer is this, is that you can't. Because you tried and our world tries all the time to give peace a chance. And our political parties try all of the time to give peace a chance. And you and I try to make peace in our families, and it turns into war. And it just continues to degrade over and over and over again. You can't sing the song of the Savior on your own. You can't do it. You can't make it happen on your own. Now, why is that? 
Why do we sit in unbelief, in darkness, in the shadow of death? Well, let me tell you this. It's really interesting when you look at the book of Luke because what happens is this, is that, as I said at the beginning of the sermon, that Luke is speaking to a guy of his time. He's speaking to a guy who is not Jewish. And he's speaking to a guy who's kind of well off. He's speaking to Theophilus. And Theophilus is this guy who has been around for quite some time in this Palestinian first century region. And so here he is. He's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. He's just a, a, you know, a regular guy, but he's pretty successful. And so Luke is bringing the gospel. It's called the gospel of Luke. Luke is bringing the gospel to this guy. And so what does he start with? Now, if I were Luke and I were thinking, you know what? I, I want Theophilus. I want my friend Theophilus. Or even today, I want, I want this friend of mine, my neighbor, that I want to come to know Jesus. If I, where am I going to begin with the story of Jesus? Where am I going to start? Am I going to start with all of these crazy things that were happening at the time, what have you, or am I just going to kind of ease my way into it? I mean, this is a little bit of a sales pitch. I'm going to be like, yeah, I mean, Jesus, and he's, he's cool. He's like my homeboy, and we're, and we're good, and we're, you know, we hang out, and I go to church sometimes. And I, I would, I would kind of think that I would want to break it to him easy. I want to break the idea of Jesus to this guy Theophilus easily. I don't want to take the hardest road. But look at what Luke does. Luke begins to speak about these first century Jews, and not just any Jews, Jew, I should say. But we're talking about Zechariah, who's very righteous. He's done all the things that God has asked him to do. He's a priest. Elizabeth is also a priest. There's Mary and Joseph. Both of them are Jewish as well. You're talking about a tiny percentage of the known world at that time. We're talking about a small sect of people. And Luke begins his story by talking about these people, and he begins to tell them this story about how this poor Jewish family all of a sudden gets this visit from an angel from an angel named Gabriel. So here we have uh, Luke, who's speaking to a guy of his day, and he begins to tell him the most off-putting things about this entire story. First of all, this guy's Jewish, and he's not just kind of Jewish, he's really Jewish, and he's very into this whole God thing, and all of a sudden what happens is this, is that Zechariah, he's in the temple, he gets a visit from an angel, no less. And the angel says, I know that you're super old and that you can't have kids anymore, but I also know that you really want kids. And by the way, I'm going to give you a kid. I'm going to supernaturally make you able to have kids. So it's not just one miracle. It's two miracles. Here's an angel. Then he tells him this thing. It's really three because now you can't speak anymore to Zechariah. And then we go to Mary. Well, Mary's sitting there, and then all of a sudden... This angel appears to her, and here's Luke, and he's writing this story to Theophilus, and he's trying to tell him, you know, Theophilus, this is how it went down. This is what it is. This is what took place. So he's telling Mary about another visit from an angel. 
And then you go on to other things. Like four different times it talks about how Zachariah's son is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Mary's son, Jesus, is to be born by the power of the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth greets Mary with a cry inspired by the Holy Spirit. And Zachariah celebrates John's birth with a prophecy in the Holy Spirit, one commentator says. There's time after time after time that he's talking about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, got the angel, got these miracles, got all of this stuff. Why is Luke beginning with these things? And then Zechariah begins to talk. He begins to sing. And he begins to talk about how these prophecies have been fulfilled that date almost back to the beginning of time by a powerful divine figure. Why does Luke begin his gospel with all of this supernatural stuff when he's talking to a man of his day? Why does he do that? It's because of this, because the foundation of the gospel is ultimately this. It is a supernatural change that happens in you. You cannot sing this song without God enabling you to sing this song. You cannot affect salvation. You cannot make yourself do it. You can't clean yourself up enough. You can't arrive at a, a place in life where you're like, you know what? I could use a little bit of church. Luke is saying this, to deny the supernatural, to deny the reality of God and his work in your life, to deny that is to deny the foundation, the very foundation of the gospel. Maybe you came in this morning, you say, you know what, I don't know about all that supernatural stuff, but I'm coming for my kids. Many people about this time of, of life, they, they're having some kids, they want them to have some morals, and so they've come to church. They reject the supernatural, and they, and they take the morality. And here's the problem, that true morality, true forgiveness of sins, true anything in that respect cannot happen in any other way without the supernatural work of Jesus Christ in your life. You can't sing about peace. You can't sing that song. You can't sing about the Savior unless God himself has enabled you to do so. You cannot make that happen. The heart of the gospel at its core is supernatural. Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it cleans people up and it makes them into better people and it causes them to be nicer and they have better friends and they're a part of these white middle class churches. No, that's not what it says. Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is God's enabling power that allows us to become changed individuals, to take us out of darkness and to bring us into light through the light, the light of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way of peace. It's not a teaching that says the way of peace is to obey the Ten Commandments. The way of peace is Jesus who fulfills all of the Ten Commandments. The way of peace is a person 
It's not a teaching. And as long as you believe that you're the one that affects peace, as long as you believe that you're the one that can cause it to happen, you can't sing the songs of Christmas. You can't legitimately pour out your heart and say, look at this God and what he's done from generation to generation. How he's kept his promises in this way and that way and how he has fulfilled everything that he said he was going to take place and how he's brought salvation to us and ultimately how he has brought peace into our world. See, peace isn't just kind of peace in general. Peace is righteousness between man and man. It talks earlier in the passage, I don't have time to go there right now, but it talks about how he brings holiness and righteousness. He brings righteousness, which is right living with my fellow man, my fellow woman. It's bringing a righteousness between us. And that righteousness, when I treat you righteously, it naturally brings peace. It enables peace to take place. But that righteousness can't happen without the working of God in our lives, the supernatural working of God in our lives because of this. I can't have right relationship with you until I have right relationship with him. I'll never treat you with respect until I treat him with his due, with his worship. I will never have great relationships in my family until I'm right with God. And so people often come to the church when they're dealing with a whole host of things that are going on. I've got a problem that I can't get rid of. I've got a marriage that's falling apart. I've got serious financial distress. I've got all of these things. Those relationships will never be healed. Maybe not even in this life, but the potential to even have them healed begins with your relationship with God who supernaturally changes you by the power of Holy, His Holy Spirit through the gospel. You need to know something. You can't sing the songs of Christmas until you've understood the song that Jesus has sung over you. And the song that Jesus sings over you is He says you're forgiven through no work that you've done of your own and I'm going to supernaturally change you from the inside. He proves it by going to the cross. Do you see what Zechariah is doing here? Zechariah is not just focusing on a nativity scene. He looks ahead to the cross. He looks ahead to the cross and he sees in that nativity scene, in that manger, he sees not just the potential, but the finality of what God is going to do through the cross. My question for you is, as you're singing about Christmas time this year, what enters your mind? Is there any real love for the Savior? Is there any great hopefulness over how he saved you. When you read words like the tender mercy of our God, 
does it allow you to just worship him? Because I got to be honest, it doesn't always feel that way to me. I don't always feel excited about Christmas. Every, every, every Christmas, I've got to tell the same story. The exact same story to you. And I have to get you interested in it, right? Sometimes I'm not as interested as I, as I should be. Sometimes I try to work that up. Sometimes I try to make that happen. Do you realize what Zachariah is doing? Zachariah is not contemplating, not thinking about what, how he's going to get right with God, how he's going to do it. He's glorying in what God has done. Can you glory in what God has done? It only can happen by the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life supernaturally. That's the only way that you can sing the songs of Christmas in reality. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, there's so many things that are going on in our lives. I know that there's probably not a person in this room that doesn't feel like they just have a lot to do. They have gifts to buy. They have places to go. They have family to be with. There's relationships that are challenging. There's all kinds of things that are happening. And Lord, it is so easy to just be in a state of just denial and unbelief. But Lord, I'm asking this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit, and Lord, we, we ask you, Holy Spirit, to awaken us to the reality of who you are. That God, we would seek out some of these passages in your word that would just erupt into praise. And Lord, that, we, that our spirit might, might praise along with your spirit. That, Lord, you would enable us to become worshipers of, of who you are because of what you've done. God, would you work in and through your word here this morning to bring about true understanding, true worship of who you are. God, we thank you for what you're going to do. It's in your name. Amen.